0: Hey there, this is Ram and you're listening to my podcast, this is the first episode. I thought um I would start with something light, but uh, it turns out I cannot. There's, there's a burning issue going on and I think most of you are already aware of it, if you're in India, that is. The issue right now is about CAA or uh, Citizenship Amendment Act 2019 and there's a lot of noise around it and I thought well let me bring some sense into all of this all of this hodgepodge of uh, things that are going on so over the last week I well I want to say this this is my very first episode of of me talking and not reading from a story So, bear with me. Um, Of course, that doesn't mean that you do not send me constructive criticism. It's always welcome. I want to improve. So, yeah, I guess that's it. Anyway, over the last week, we saw a lot of protests everywhere. Most of the groups that I'm part of had a discussion about the uh, CAA going on. When I said what I said, I actually surprised a lot of people because, because most people think that my ideas are uh, contrary to the ruling parties in India. Now, I don't know how to explain to them that my ideas do not have anything to do with what politicians say. Politicians say what they want to say, what they have to say. It's their profession, right? My thoughts are about what I learn from what facts I see, right? Anyway, let me get to the point. It, it, this the citizenship amendment act is not about throwing people out, at all. The NRC is a different issue, and of course, like always, uh, anybodys is free to disagree. This is a free country. I'm a free man. You're a free person, very likely a free person. So you're 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 allowed to disagree. But this is what I see in the citizenship amendment act, and well. This is it. So, buckle up, (laughs) this is an interesting ride. The first thing is, who are the citizens of India? And this, I'm going to talk from a really constitutional perspective. Now, to know what's going on, what, what the constitution says about citizenship, because citizenship is something that I've taken for granted. Because I was born in India, I've not known any other country like I've known India. Right, this is what I saw this is my motherland and I take my citizenship for granted but when we talk about things like the citizenship amendment act and all of the clutter that is surrounding it uh, we really need to establish what a citizen of India means and to that I felt the constitution was the best place to get that information and so I downloaded a copy of the constitution of India, I got it from 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 the uh, website of the legislative department of the Ministry of Law. Now, if you would like, go ahead and download it. The link is on my blog, on this, on the post. Um, the post is called "C.A.A. is not about throwing people out." It's available on blog. So that's blog. dot, dot Me. Anyway, I'm going to assume that you have a copy of the Constitution. If not, pause the episode, go download it and verify it for yourself. Part 2 of the Constitution defines who it considers a citizen of India. Now, understand that the Constitution itself came into power on the 26th of January 1950. And if you read the Article 5 of the Constitution, in plain English, it says anyone who took birth in India since the 26th January 1950 anyone who was in India since the 26th of January 1945 or were biological children of Indian parents parents who were either born in India or had lived in India for over five years by the 26th of January were the citizens of India five years later the parliament enacted what is called the Citizenship Act that's in 1955 This act actually talks about who would be the citizen of India starting 1950 because in 1950 when the Constitution itself came into power, Indians were already Indians. So the Constitution's job at that time was to define who these people were. But going forward, what happens, how people become Indian citizens and if you're not an Indian citizen and if if you're a foreigner, how do you apply for, for citizenship? So, these things are being talked about by the Citizenship Act of 1955. In 1987, the Parliament amended the Citizenship Act. Now it said anybody born between the 26th of January 1950 and the 1st of July 1987 was a citizen of India apart from those that the Constitution already counted as citizens when it was formed. But now, To be a a citizen of India that is going forward from the 1st of July 1987, at least one of your parents had to be an Indian. If your year of birth was 1990, for example, you would be a citizen of India if one of your parents is Indian, not because you were born in India. Not only because you were born in India. The parliament made another amendment to this act in 2003, which said that both your parents must be Indian, for you to be an Indian citizen. But what happens if your parents are not Indian and came to India in say 1985? Are you still an Indian citizen? Why does it matter? And that actually brings us to the point of immigration of people to India. And before I talk about immigration of people to India, in the context of CAA 2019, I must talk about what religious persecution is. And this is a term that we keep hearing these days and 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 it's become very common people probably understand the meaning of it probably they don't anyway so let's say that there was a country called gamaland and the people of gamaland worshipped a lomanso gomo their religion being gomoism imagine that an Ashok Kumar, a Buddhist, is a, is a resident of that country. He's been the re- his entire family has been there for seven generations, so it it implies that they they are naturally the citizens of that country. Now today, let's say that in 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 Gamaland there is religious extremism, and the Gomos ill-treat Ashok Kumar and his family by say beating him up if they, if if he stepped out of the house or he went outside somewhere, people just barge into his house and burn it down or something of that sort, only because he's a Buddhist, not because he's done something wrong. Even if he did something wrong, I don't think burning a house down is a good punishment, and I don't think it should be done by people. But anyway, the reason he's being beaten up is because he has his faith is different. This is an example of religious persecution. Now, imagine that Ashok Kumar uh, managed to escape the country and come to India. Now, he's an immigrant and there are two kinds of immigrant. The first is a legal immigrant. For example, if I went to, say, Greece with a passport and a visa, which means I'm going there with the permission of that country, I am a legal immigrant. Let's say that Greece says you can come to uh, Greece and be here for three weeks. If I go there and remain for two weeks, I'm a legal immigrant to Greece. And then I come back within two weeks, I come back being a legal immigrant. The other kind is the illegal immigrant, which we'll come to at some point. Now, this way, Parsi's from Iran have migrated to India. During the partition of India in, the, in, in 1947, probably a few years that followed 1947, millions of people went from the dominion of India to the dominion of Pakistan and vice versa. Now, even after the partition, people from East Pakistan kept coming to India because of religious persecution over there. Thousands of Sri Lankan Tamils have come to India. Tibetans have come to India. In fact, Dalai Lama, the Dalai Lama, lives in India. Similarly, Rohingyas from Myanmar came to India. And, and this is recent, I, I think it was 2015. People from Afghanistan have also at some point come to India to escape religious persecution there. Now, according to the 2001 census, most migration to India took place from Bangladesh and Pakistan. Remember, this does not say Muslims alone migrated from there. And this is an important point to note. These immigrants could be Hindus, Sikhs, or anyone including Muslims. Now these people who came to India are immigrants. The Citizenship Act defines an illegal immigrant. That's uh, 1b of the Citizenship Act. It says illegal immigrant means a foreigner who has entered into India without a, without, uh, one without a valid passport or other travel documents and such other document or authority as may have as may be prescribed by or under any law in that behalf or two with a valid passport and other travel documents and such other documents or authority as may be prescribed by or under in any law in that behalf but remains therein beyond the permitted period of time in simple english this means someone who does not have the travel documents such as a visa or has a tra- travel documents, but, but a state beyond the period specified in the document. The takeaway so far should be that immigrants do not automatically become citizens. They must apply for citizenship, which gets approved, and then they become a citizen. And so it, it, it naturally follows that those with valid documents will be able to apply for citizenship without much trouble. For illegal immigrants, it'd be difficult everything so far is fine what follows is where the issue is now what does the citizenship amendment act of 2019 do until this point irrespective of the religion or the country of origin if anyone came to India without proper documents was an illegal immigrant point number one those with proper documents if they wanted to become Indian would have to stay in India for 11 years and then apply for citizenship. Now, what has happened to illegal immigrants for so uh, for so long is out of scope of, you know, this episode, basically. We're not going there yet, okay? Now, the Citizenship Amendment Act of 2019 changes this. It says it does not matter how someone came to India from these three countries. I'll, I'll mention those countries. But if they came in before the 31st of December from either Bangladesh Pakistan or Afghanistan and they belong to either of the six communities which is Hindu, Sikh, Buddhist, Jain, Christian or Parsi. They can get citizenship. In other words, if you came in from one of these three countries and you belong to one of these uh, six communities and you've come five years ago, you can apply for citizenship. Again, you do not automatically become citizens. You still have to apply, you still have to establish that you came in before the 31st of December 2014 and you have to establish that you have come from one of these three countries. Also, going forward, immigrants belonging to these six communities coming from these three countries will have to reside in India for five years as opposed to 11 before applying for citizenship. Now, most people take this as the the trigger, but do not jump yet. There is a lot to it. Okay, Um, the next thing that the protesters in the TV debates keep mentioning is Article 14. Article 14 talks about equality before law. It says, the state shall not deny to any person equality before the law or the equal protection of the laws within the territory of India now they say they they quote this and they say why not include Myanmar and Sri Lanka given that Rohingya Muslims from Myanmar and uh, the Sri Lankan Tamirs are both minorities in their respective nations and they have all been re- uh, religiously persecuted is this not discrimination now this has got nothing to do with the Constitution. The Parliament should answer its people. But this in itself is not against the Constitution. This is instead, what they say, a matter of policy, not a matter of law. Feel free to verify this against your copy of the Constitution. Article 14 actually provides for what is known as reasonable classification. If I had to say this, this, this in plain English, something of this sort, say religious minorities from Pakistan, Bangladesh and Afghanistan belonging to either Hindu, Christian, Sikh, Jain, Buddhist and Parsi communities. This is a specific class of people and also what is important is that this in itself is not meant to divide the subjects of legislation that is the current Indian citizens into separate classes. Why? because this does not talk about us in the first place. This talks about specific religious minorities from these three specific countries. If you look at it from from the legal standpoint, if anything, the CAA actually relaxes the citizenship law. And it's not just me who says this. Ask any expert, any constitutional expert. They will tell you, that the CAA actually relaxes the citizenship law. In reality, it says, and this is the most misunderstood point, everybody thinks that it excludes Muslims from citizenship. It's not so. In reality, Muslims coming from these three countries are the same as any other immigrant. For example, persecuted Tamers from Sri Lanka and the muslims coming from pakistan are treated in the exact same way but those from these six communities that we mentioned will have the law relaxed because the amendment presumes them to be persecuted minorities in muslim majority countries and where do you find this you find this in the parliamentary debates is it okay to presume that people from these communities in these countries, are religiously persecuted? Legally, yes. Constitutionally, yes. But, now, if you're among those that ask if the government can do this, people say, how can a government do this? Who gave the government the power? That's Article 11 of the Constitution. it, It allows the Parliament to regulate the right to citizenship by law. And I quote, nothing in the foregoing provisions of this part shall derogate the power of the parliament to make any provision with respect to the acquisition or termination of citizenship and all other matters relating to citizenship plain english the parliament has all the rights to decide the right of citizenship by amending the constitution this gives the right to the legislative body to bring in acts such as that of 1955 and the amendments to it such as those in 1987 2003 and the current one 2019 now at this point it does not look like the immigrants have to establish religious persecution and that's another important point to note the parliament discussed the matter of religious persecution but it this part does not feature in the body of the bill the parliament assumes that minorities in these three countries face religious prosecution and that's good enough for the constitution of India. Now given that article 14 presumes validity, if I were a Hindu in Pakistan who wants to come to India, those opposing my citizenship have to prove that I did not face religious persecution but I'm coming to India because say I love the pollution in New Delhi whether leaving it that way is right or wrong is not a matter of constitution it's a matter of policy this debate will have to be taken as a matter of policy because by nature of our law the accused does not have to prove innocence but the accuser has to prove guilt of the accused so (laughs) legally the parliament can make a reasonable classification by means of article 14, which it did, and can amend the citizenship law by means of article 11, which also it did. Legally, this is no problem. If religious persecution were a criteria of uh, religious uh, reasonable classification, this still means that according to the law, if you're a Hindu who migrated to India because of economic reasons, economic reasons, somebody accusing you of foul play has to prove it To make you an immigrant who would need to spend 11 years in india before applying for a citizenship it's not your responsibility to prove that you were religiously persecuted now the question remains that if religious persecution were a criteria um, whether the government will ask non-muslims coming from india uh, sorry coming to india from these three countries on economic or other grounds or the potential quote-unquote infiltrators wait 11 years who will fund the foul play again policy issue not a legal one a question for mr shah's claims to answer not for the constitution if you can legally prove that you're a religious minority that is you belong to one of these six communities and you come from these three countries you have a relaxed citizenship process now if all you cared about was validation of your claims You can stop listening to this and get on with your lives but if you care about the spirit of india and about educating yourself then hang on here are the nuances now why are people crying unconstitutional that's the very first question and at the beginning i was of the thought that this went against the constitution and then i read documents I downloaded the constitution, read parts of it myself, spoke to people from both the sides, and listened to their claims. WhatsApp University, of course, had a boatload of crap as usual. But I've reached a point where I can differentiate between fact and fiction, and I'm not one of those that um, is emotionally attached to my religion or anything. I I would rather say I'm more of a rational thinker than. An emotionally religious person so among those that say that this is technically constitutional but it deviates from the principle of the Constitution I belong to that category now this anxiety and and I say this very carefully only about those that are anxious based on facts not every protester out there this anxiety stems from the, from from some of these aspects the first one is the assam issue if you look at the protests happening today most of them are in the northeast yes there there is a lot happening in delhi there's there's one happening in there there are a few happening in bangalore there there's there are a few happening in chennai and so on but the concentration is the highest in the northeast and so everyone talks about assam and immigration of bangladeshi's to Assam and the other northeastern regions. The home minister says, infiltrators are the nation's problem. Desh ki samasya hai. Because West Bengal is a border state, the problem is more acute there. But infiltrators are there in in the entire country. And then we talk about the NRC exercise in Assam. This increases a lot of noise. So I am going to separate NRC from CAA and this is how I see it for now right until we establish what NRC is and what CAA is now we have spoken about CAA but what was the reason of for NRC in Assam first of all in Assam the issue was not religion it never was religion if BJP does not agree with this it does not matter it was never religion, the tribal people of Assam, they felt that because there was so much of influx of people from Bangladesh, both Hindus and Muslims, that their ethnic identity and that of the land was getting eroded. It did not matter to them which religion the immigrants belonged to. All that mattered to them was that the immigrants did not belong to Assam. That was the issue. Now, the Assam issue actually has come up on a large scale at least twice in the past. First, ever since the partition of India and Pakistan, the Hindus have been coming in from uh, East Pakistan, which now is Bangladesh. These immigrants came into West Bengal, Tripura, Meghalaya and Assam. Now, Assam had a problem that these immigrants were diluting the ethnicity of people. Even though the border share between Bangladesh and and Assam is the smallest among the four states that I mentioned. Now to put an end to all of this immigration, India and Bangladesh signed an agreement. The agreement said that anybody who came into Assam from Bangladesh, irrespective of the religion, since the 25th of March 1971, must go back to Bangladesh the second time this came up was since 1978 where there was supposed to be a re-election and we found out basically the government found out that the number of registered voters had shot up dramatically compared to the previous elections the students said well the problem has arisen again so they went down to the streets in protest and the protest became a movement called the assam movement and this went on for several years in the end in 1985 rajiv gandhi signed the assam accord with these bodies that were uh, that were leading the assam movement and in that accord, it was de- de- declared that those who came into Assam after the 24th of March, 1971 were illegal immigrants. They had to go back. After the accord, what remained was to find out who were the, Im- uh, who were the immigrants and who were the domiciles. The parties that were supposed to take, take this up, they kept promising in NRC, but it did not happen. Recently, I mean, in the, f- in the past few years... This issue came up again and the Supreme Court ordered an NRC exercise. And that, as Mr. Shekhar Gupta says, through surprises. After the NRC exercise, 19 lakh people, that's 1.9 million people in Assam were identified as immigrants from Bangladesh. This was probably still expected, what was not expected, was that a majority, the majority of them, were Hindus. And that brought panic. Now, this is 2019, and BJP is not alone in this. But there is no party in the entire India that has the, I should I say, audacity to throw out over 10 lakh or 1 million Hindus from India, saying that they are illegal immigrants, not one political party would do that in 2019. Not the Congress, not the left, and most certainly not the BJP. If the BJP pitched something like this, I would look to the West in the morning to welcome the sun. I mean it. Now, if you understand what the CAA of 2019 says, you will know that it goes directly against what the Assam Court of 1985 said. And... and It goes directly against the agreement between India and uh, Bangladesh of 1971. So, in a sense, it kills the purpose of the Assam movement. And it also renders all of the efforts of the government and the 1200 crore rupees, that is 12 billion rupees, spent in the NRC exercise, wasted. Wasted. The CAA was supposed to handle this issue like a hot knife on butter. But it ended up being a pneumatic drill. You know, jackhammer. On granite. Again, do not jump. Not your trigger. Now, what happens if I cannot prove my citizenship? Let's say that I'm outside of Assam and I cannot prove my citizenship. At this point, the answer to this question is unknown. All we can do is look at Assam and see what's happening and speculate. This is probably what would happen now to us. But the government keeps saying that the NRC exercise in Assam was entirely different and that will not be replicated um, in the rest of India. But there will be an NRC process uh, in India so far. It's not spoken about officially spoken about the criteria on which um, the NRC exercise would be run and we would need to wait but in the meanwhile let's address a few of the claims that these, these politicians keep making first thing are people coming from Bangladesh and this is this is something that, that's picked up picked up real good traction because everybody thinks that people are coming down to India from Bangladesh and I would be surprised if I'm proven wrong because you know I'm, I'm talking on basis of data look There are two reasons people come from Bangladesh to India. People have been coming from Bangladesh to India over the past seven decades. One, religious persecution. Two, economy. Ask anybody who came to India from Bangladesh with an idea to settle here, not not people who came here to visit, people who came in with the idea to settle in India. They will tell you one of these two reasons. Now, the home minister says, Bangladesh is a theocratic Islamic state. And he implies, you know, that as a state, it does not respect other religions. He says that Hindus suffer torture in Bangladesh. If somebody said this about Pakistan, I will accept it without second thought. I'm not saying that all Pakistanis are bad. I'm I'm just saying that as a state, Pakistan is capable of doing it. But Bangladesh... He said he read the Constitution of Bangladesh. But I think, I think he missed to read the preamble of the Constitution of Bangladesh. And I quote, Pledging that the high ideals of nationalism, socialism, democracy and secularism, which inspired our heroic people to dedicate themselves to and our brave martyrs to sacrifice their lives in the national liberation struggle, shall be the fundamental principles of the constitution did you hear secularism bangladesh in 1971 declared itself a secular socialist democratic republic india added the word secular and socialist to the preamble in 1976 through the 42nd amendment now to get this straight islam is the state religion of bangladesh but it's also A secular state that treats other religions as equal. Now, yes, yes, there has been martial law in Bangladesh for some time. And during that time, Bangladesh was Islamized. But recently, their Supreme Court declared all the laws passed under the martial law as void. It upheld what the Constitution said. And it also prohibited the use of Sharia law. Now, that makes Bangladesh a not-a-theocratic state. If if we, if we say that a state that enshrines secularism in the constitution does not make them secular, we should perhaps look in the mirror before making these accusations. A second is economic refuge. India was once way better off than Bangladesh, but in 2019, Bangladesh is either equal or better than India in in a, in a good number of economic indicators, and this data is from the print. Now, we are, as in we, India, are at 4.5 percent GDP growth rate. Bangladesh is at 8.1. India is slightly—that's about 17 percent—higher in per, per capita GDP, but. Bangladesh's per capita income is 60% higher than Assam and almost the same as West Bengal. Bangladesh's female labor participation is 33%. India's is 27.2%. Certainly women from Bangladesh are not dying to come to India for jobs. And 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 this is another point for non-Islamism because Bangladesh treats its women better than average Islamic states. And in the end, finally, the Global Hunger Index. India is at rank 102. Bangladesh is at 88. They are ahead of us by 14 positions. In other words, there may have been Bangladeshis coming in, in the past, but India is not attractive to them anymore. Anyway, this was mainly to call out Mr. Amit Shah for his statements on, on our friend nation. If you think I'm putting, down, putting India down, you're part of the problem. You're not facilitating diagnosis. It's important to know, look, these things are statistics. It's not about putting one country down and taking the other up and saying one is better than the other. No, that's not the point. The point is that people from Bangladesh hardly have a reason to come to India. And that's the point of focus in this context. Now the second question, are Muslims persecuted in Pakistan? Understand that Islam has different sects. Pakistan is you know based on the ideology of the Sunni sect of Islam. Now understanding the intricacies of Islam is, is beyond me. Um, but but the fact is that the state in general cares little about the non-Sunni Muslims, Shias. Um, I think Hazaras from are, are from Afghanistan But anyway These other sects either get the second class treatment Or they face persecution Now you might say, so what? Why is it India's responsibility to give shelter to the Shias or the Ahmadiyas um, If they face persecution in Pakistan? How is that India's problem? Of course, legally And, and by legally I mean the law of India I'm not talking about the the international law because somebody pointed out um, that there's something in the international law that talks about the moral obligation of the states to give refuge I haven't read it yet so I wouldn't be able to comment on that I'll find it out maybe in a different episode we'll talk about it but right now the the real point is India has no obligation to absorb anyone into its population, into its citizens. Now, today India says that the members of these six religious communities from these three nations have a relaxed citizenship law. Tomorrow, we could say that we extend the courtesy to Rohingya Muslims and no one else, legally and constitutionally, will be right in saying it. But the counter question why is it India's responsibility to give shelter to anybody coming from any, any other country? What does it matter what religion they follow? Again, legally, India has no obligation to absorb them into the population as citizens. But the answer to why not Muslims, being Muslims, do not face persecution in Pakistan, is factually inter- incorrect. You, you cannot say that Muslims do not face persecution in Pakistan. They do. Now, point number two. Given that most immigrants coming into India from Bangladesh and Pakistan, and this is based on census 2001, India is refusing to relax the citizenship law for one part of the immigrants. Why? Of course, this is policy discussion, not a legal discrimination, but why the discrimination from even the policy standpoint in a secular state? Now, this probably disturbs a lot of people, but... Here it is, um, we are a secular state, the right-wingists, the, um, I don't know, the, the, the non-secular Hindutva uh, protecting people, I, 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 don't, I don't know what, what term to use for them, but they do not like the term secular, but that's not my problem. We are a secular state. The Constitution says it. That's how we were formed. India has no state religion. India was not formed by the partition, Pakistan was. And if anyone told you otherwise, they're wrong. And Mr. Shah is no exception. Those that did not believe in India's secular philosophy and believed in the Islamic philosophy went to Pakistan. The partition was not about Hindus and Muslims, but about a class of Muslims wanting a separate Islamic state on one side and everyone else on the other the everyone else included Muslims who did not want uh, an Islamic state now that is India my friend it did not matter what God you believed in or whether you believed in a God what you ate or wore what language you spoke what you did for a living or anything as crude all that mattered was that you wanted to be free and be together perhaps as a nation people mattered we indians are not united by a religion not by a language not by an ideology not by culture not by ethnicity not by color of the skin we were not even a single nation to begin with what unites us is the idea of india the sense of oneness is despite our differences beyond tolerance we are we believe in the philosophy of inclusion that is India this model of oneness is magnificent but also rather fragile in a sense and and that probably upsets more people than than this makes happy but my role is not to make you happy a populist has to make the masses happy and in this hunger to make the masses happy comes the game of majority to appeal to the majority a populist into what the masses like. It does not matter whether it is right or wrong. It, all that matters is that the masses should feel comfortable following what, what, what the populace says. So gradually, making the majority happy becomes an obsession. And as the obsession advances, the deeper pop, the populace goes into the most basic of instincts. Today, that is fear. That is hatred. And in this race, we, along with the populist, lose sight of the sense of India and alienate a section of the society. Then another. Then another. Until everyone is alienated. Because no one can satiate this lust. Now take a step back and think. What we fought two centuries for would not last one. History will repeat itself. One of my friends said India should have more nationalism to counter the division mode that we are in. He meant it in the sense of landmass. But what good is a country with an undivided landmass but divided people, resentment and and inner lines? So that brings me back to, was this amendment needed? No. No. Read Article 11 again and you'll know that the government can decide and declare anyone a citizen. The government can accord and revoke anyone's citizenship as it deems fit. Now given that, what was the necessity to bring this amendment? Even as a matter of policy, why was this required? What was so pressing after all? The Sikhs, Christians, Hindus, Buddhists, Jains, Parsis, from other countries, wait 11 years to get Indian citizenship like everybody else. So what? You want people of these religions to feel welcome? Sure. But are others not? Should I remind you that we are a secular state? We do not do things based on religion. And what it looks like, I'm not saying this is what you're doing, but this is what it looks like. It looks like you're preferring one set of religions over another now is this act discriminatory constitutionally no if you have any questions rewind listen to this again but fundamentally based on the spirit of India yes I I quote this from the citizenship amendment act in the third schedule to the principal act principal act meaning the citizenship act in clause D, the following proviso shall be inserted, namely, provided that for a person belonging to Hindu, Sikh, Buddhist, Jain, Parsi or Christian community in Afghanistan, Bangladesh or Pakistan, the aggregate period of residence or service of government in India as required under this clause shall be read as not less than 5 years in place of not less than 11 years. And now that we have discussed Citizenship and the Citizenship Amendment Act and Secularism, we come to Nationwide NRC and this is what makes the act malicious. My opinion of course, you are free to disagree. Now the Home Minister says, "Up chronology samajhi, understand the chronology. Pehle CAB aayega, uske baad mein NRC aayega. The CAB will come into existence and then there will be the NRC during the NRC exercise based on our experience everyone everyone in India is suspected non-citizen to begin with now the citizens then establish their citizenship and get included in the registry and probably get a number now I would have no problem establishing my citizenship because I have airtight documentation proving my citizenship right from my birth. I got educated, I know to work with the government functions, my parents and I have ensured to preserve the documents, I have a job in the regulated sector of the economy, I have a bank account with continuous transactions, I have nothing to worry about. But what number of citizens can do this? I don't know will a voter id count as a valid document my guess is as good as yours now back in the day and people need to understand this back in the day nobody worried about all these things nobody had a digital locker to store the documents what would those that do not have this documents do for example the, the only two documents that my mother has to prove her citizenship are the voter id and the family card now if you say that voter id will the voter id be accepted because remember what what happened in 1978 in assam was that the number of voter registered voters had shot up and they could not take voter id as a document for nrc of course this is the rest of india probably um voter id could be accepted but i'm not sure if the voter id is not accepted the document that my mother can use is 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 the family card if they say well family card cannot be accepted then she has no document to prove her citizenship all she can do is prove prove that she's the wife of my father and my father has all the all the necessary documentation to prove his citizenship so that's not an issue now this way she is a citizen but what about others My mother went to school, got educated, and still this is the situation. What about the uneducated or the illiterate? Perhaps they have the documents. Maybe not. Maybe the the documents they have will be accepted. Maybe not. All that we say with respect to the NRC will, will be mere speculation. The government has not shared any official word on the exercise. Now, everyone says, do not look at the CR, uh, CAA with the NRC. They are, the, they are two separate things, but I cannot help but look at them together because Mr. Shah said the latter, has, that's NRC will follow CAA and, and that the goal is to expel these intruders from the country. Should I read between the lines along with the current narratives? No? All right. So... The amendment, if married to the NRC, goes against the spirit of the Constitution of India, not the Constitution itself. This is beyond technicalities. Now, do I support the NRC? Not at this time. Does it mean I'm in favor of illegal immigrants? No, I'm not in favor of anything illegal. Look, the NRC exercise is expensive. 12 billion rupees is not a small amount for a state. And to find what? Uh, 1.9 million immigrants, 6% of the population of Assam. Now, this is a small state. It has 3.09 crore people or 30 million people. The expense, if this NRC exercise is carried carried out across India, that would be 52,000 crore rupees. And, and of course, this is by simple arithmetic. I, I have not accounted for the speed of the process and the inflation and operational difficulties and the challenges and those things I mean But in general that gives us an idea about how much of money would be spent on this exercise Can we afford it financially especially at this time? Is this the most pressing issue in 2019-20? No No second Do we go tracking down every illegal immigrant and throw them into detention centers? Okay, let's assume that we do it. In Assam, the NRC identified 6% of those that were evaluated as illegal immigrants. Assam is a border state. So, say the rest of India, we find 3% as illegal immigrants. That makes it 4 crore people, 40 million people. Do you have enough detention centers for them? Or are we going to build them now? Now, maybe, maybe, NRC doesn't happen at all. Just like in Assam, it did not happen for 30 years. Good. But what was the necessity of this amendment? Now, when I spoke, uh, one of my friends actually said, well, I want the persecuted minorities to enter. and, And I want to have a list of Indian citizens also. Give me a solution. Persecuted minorities can still enter Even without the amendment Why do you want to make Immigrants citizens I don't see much sense in it I mean okay Make them Let them be immigrants Let them be here for 11 years And then they apply for citizenship Prove that they've been here for 11 years And they want to become citizens of India And they become citizens of India Whether they were persecuted or not Okay, let's say they were persecuted. They belong to a different country. Why do you want to make them all citizens? I'm, I'm not saying that citizenship is bad, but I'm saying, what is the necessity to bring this law that says that you guys, you guys just have to stay here for five years and you become citizens of India, while the other guys, everybody else, has to stay 11 years. I mean it does not really make sense to me nothing that i've heard as as justification for this for making these people citizens of india it's all been bleak there there's no strong argument to support it now leave it there let's let's come to nrc if you want to do an nrc exercise wait first work on the infrastructure Now, let me give you an example. I cannot download my birth certificate online. Why? I have a physical birth certificate from the Chennai Corporation. Chennai Corporation also says that everyone born since 1989 can get their birth certificates on their site. There are birth certificates that, that exist for the day that I was born. A lot of them, but I do not find mine. And I, I tried to get in touch with people to fix it, but it's not worked. This is something that we need to work on as a government. Now, yes, it's nice of you to say that no, no Indian citizen will, will go through hardship because of NRC. That's, that's a nice thing to say. Because not all citizens of India have documentation to prove their citizenship. Yes, many of them vote most of them vote probably but are you going to accept voter ids now my point is start regulating the documentation make a set of documents mandatory push citizens to get these documents make the process simple make the process understandable not everybody is a shashi tharoor you cannot throw legal language at people and and, and assume that they understand. Many of us are illiterate. We do not understand legal terms. Reduce bureaucracy. Remember this, if the NRC gets introduced now, it will be another demonetization. Thought is hard and it probably does not naturally come to you. You take pride in not being an intellectual because you never disagree with yourself, but, but thought is necessary. This is not about the past 70 years. This is not about who is bold. This is not about power play. This is not a game in the first place. And no, I did not say that this is somehow a political party's way of taking away the um, voting rights of a large, unfavorable chunk of population, making the, the immigrant Muslims wait for six years like everybody else, quote unquote, and expediting the citizenship of non-Muslim immigrants at the same time in the Bengal region before the elections to enlarge the favourable vote bank. Saying so would be highly unintellectual of me. I leave such behaviour to those who can go on stage and find out by the clothing of people about what their agenda is. (laughs) Anyway, long live Bharat Ganarajya, the sovereign, secular, democratic, Republic of India. Thank you for listening and I hope that I've cleared a few questions of yours. If you have any more questions, I am at the Ramayar on Twitter or find me on Facebook. If you're a troll, I'll ignore you.